Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Actually, I'm not, but it sounds like I am. So, yeah, that's the way this works. So, good morning to you. I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, I'm actually in Hawaii. And, but, because so many people bitched at me last time I went for not doing shows... I thought I would take care of that. So um, I've been trying to get this uh, guy to come on for about a week and uh, try, finally got our schedule synced up. And uh, the issue is about how the military is doing with prosecuting sexual assault. You see much in the news, and the news is uh, relative to the issue is uh, you now have a member of the Senate Armed Service Committee Retired Army officer, uh, I believe she was a lieutenant colonel, Joni Ernst, Republican from Iowa, if I'm not mistaken. She's now a co-sponsor of the bill, along with the person who first proposes, I want to say as long ago as 2005, when the issue began to be discussed, and that is Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. So... Evidently, there's 61 senators in the Senate that will support this. Um, and so, um, I don't know, probably 10 days ago or so, I saw uh, an article uh, that was published on a website called The Hill. And the headline says, statistics don't support 
removing commanders from military justice. Huh? Statistics? So um, I read the article. I followed the footnotes. And uh, then after that, I read an article that appears, a more technical article that appears in the Gonzaga Law Review. Um, And it was just published in April of 2021. It's entitled, National Military and College Reports on Prosecution of Sexual Assault and Victims' Rights, colon, Is the Military Actually Safer Than Civilian Society? So I read that, and their conclusion is, yes, that the military does a better job at prosecuting these cases and then also caring for the victims, free legal counsel, free medical services, blah, 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 blah. So I thought, well, let me reach out to David Schleter. And uh, Lisa Schenk. David um, is a retired military guy and uh, now uh, teaches at St. Mary's University in Texas at their school of law. Lisa Schenk, uh, she teaches at George Washington University School of Law School. And so for both of them, I mean, their resumes are crazy off the hook. Right. Uh, David retired army colonel and uh, and Lisa's got this resume. I mean, and you'll hear David talk about his and and his background. So um, I I tracked him down. And so the interview you're going to hear is an interview about um, these three, these two articles. And then another one that they published just. um not even two weeks ago, and it's entitled Taking Charge of Court-Martial Charges, colon, The Important Role of the Commander in the American Military Justice System. And this is in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty, and it was uh, it was published on May 6th, so by the same two authors. So anyway, um, what you're about to hear is, uh, is David Schleter. And it's a very, very interesting perspective that he has and one that I had never heard before. And one backed up with data. So very interesting stuff. And without further ado, David Schleter. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Uh, my next guest lives in Texas, so I felt the need to play some country and western music. And uh, joining me is David Schleter. And uh, David, first of all, um, thank you for doing this. I... Uh, I saw your work, uh, not just your work, but uh, the work uh, that you've done with uh, Lisa. How do you say Lisa's, how do you pronounce Lisa's last name? Shank? Skank. Skank, yes. 
Wow. You guys have some crazy German names, but um, no. I, and I just, I saw the, the, the first article I saw was in the Hill and I was riveted in the footnoted nature of, of the research you did and, and your conclusions, which uh, are not, uh, were, were a, sh- a surprise to me to say the least. And then because, mm-hmm. you know, I spent the first 30 years of my life never reading a footnote. And then as I began to head down, you know, intellectual paths, I found out that it's all in the footnotes, for God's sakes. So I followed some of the hyperlinks in your article that took me to an article uh, in the Gonzaga Law Review. And uh, and I was, uh, I, I won't say I was flabbergasted, I was inspired because of the detailed nature of your work, the thoroughness of it, and the story that it told. And so uh, I wanted to have you on. And, uh, and just before we even start this, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, because I think it, your work is an important piece of this discussion for a lot of different reasons. Well, thank you very much. It's As someone who does a lot of legal writing, it's always, a, it's always an honor and humbling to hear that somebody actually reads what you write and, uh, and goes further and says they like what you write what you wrote. So thank you very much. So my pleasure to be with you today. Well, we don't have too many soldiers on Almarine radio. So I just want you to know that be very careful. Okay. Cause <laughs> yeah. we're already on thin ice. The, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, for, let's talk about you first born and raised where I was born and raised in uh, Iowa. I was born in Sioux city. My dad was a Lutheran minister. In fact, he just passed away a couple months ago here in San Antonio, uh, 99 years old. And um, moved to Arizona, then back to Iowa, then to Texas in uh, in the 60s, and uh, went to uh, Texas A&M. And uh, that's actually how I, I got into the Army, because uh, I wanted to um, work for NASA. I wanted to design rockets. So I went to Texas A&M, and they had a mandatory Corps of Cadets, seven days a week, and uh, went into the Corps. And uh, my second year, I decided this isn't too bad. I signed a contract and uh, switched majors from uh, engineering to English and decided at that point that I wanted to to go into law. But uh, when I was uh, commissioned, when I graduated, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in field artillery. I'd done the whole thing with summer camp, and I graduated January 69. I fully expected to go to Vietnam, but went to law school first. A lot of my buddies went to Vietnam. Some of them didn't come back and uh, was accepted in the JAG Corps. And then again, still expected to go to uh, to Nam. But by then, the only people they were sending over to Nam were those who had compelling reasons. I think one person out of my basic class went because he'd been there as a speedy four and wanted to go back. So I spent nine and a half years on uh, active duty as an Army JAG. I was a appellate lawyer, uh, prosecutor. Went to the Army Jag School in Charlottesville, where I taught, and uh, had orders to go to Germany to be a military judge. When I got a job offer to work at the U.S. Supreme Court as an in-house counsel, so I did that for wow. a couple of years. The Chief Justice asked me to stay at least three. He wanted some uh, continuity. I said, "If I can get a job after two, teaching, will you let me go?" And he was gracious enough. So. In '83, we moved to San Antonio. Well, so we, will you name drop the Chief Justice's name just so it understands who the people we're talking about? Chief Justice Berger, Warren Berger. Yeah, some of you may have heard yeah. of him. You All know, right. it's ironic because when I got to the court, Mac, I was surprised at how many former military people were there. 
The uh, deputy clerk of court was a former sergeant major in the army. Um, the people in the uh, in the police department were former MPs or and other uh, military uh, branches of the other services. And I was uh, amazed. I I talked with the people there, and they said the military is held in very high regard at the Supreme Court because they know what their duty is, they know what the mission is, and they do it. Uh, somebody said they use top drawer quality. You know, you're uh, you're getting the best of the best of the best, creme de la creme. And I always remember that. You would have thought that Supreme Court would uh, be anti-military, but actually yeah. behind the walls, a you, lot of military people there. You'd think they'd be, you know, Ivy League, highbrows, not mm-hmm. so much military, mm-hmm. but very, very mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very heartening, I might add. So I, I just wanted you to drop that name because okay. – <laughs> no, I mean it, it, it speaks of your, your, your background. It speaks of where you come from. Um, and, uh, I mean, and, and for what we're going to talk about your credibility as somebody who's, uh, who served in, in very high places, uh, been chosen by, um, people that are historical figures in, in, in our nation's history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important as we talk about, you know, uh, this issue of sexual assault in the military and, and, and how, how we deal with it. So, so continue. So, so at some point you leave the Supreme court. Right. And then I took a, I did look for a teaching job and, uh, uh, the law school here in San Antonio, St. Mary's university school of law offered both my wife and I, uh, teaching jobs. My wife is a lawyer. We met at Baylor law school and, uh, I have to, I told her I was going to give a shout out to her, you know, for those in the audience who have spouses who, uh, put up with those of us who've been on active duty. She certainly put up with me all the way was never assigned overseas. I made a lot of TDY trips and inevitably I was, I was doing my reserve duty. When I, when I took the job at the Supreme court, I resigned my active duty commission and went into the reserves. So I stayed in the reserves. I retired as a Lieutenant Colonel with 27 years. So I've been in and around military justice. um, Well, since 1972, when I went on active duty, but uh, even before then, potentially through the ROTC training at A&M. So in 83, we moved here and uh, our kids were raised here. They were both born in Virginia, but um, we're naturalized Texans. <laughs> well said. Well said. And so w- what are you doing now? I'm still teaching full time. I'm probably within about a year of retiring and, and maybe teaching on a part time basis. But um, my specialty areas are, are evidence. I have taught constitutional law. I do teach military law. In fact, I just finished grading my last paper in my military law seminar a couple hours ago, so I'll be turning those grades in. But I've also uh, directed our advocacy program, so I've done a little bit of everything. But the one thing that I really love to do, even since grade school, uh, I love to write. And so uh, both my wife and I have written a number of um legal treatises. So we are very familiar with footnotes and we always debate. Do you put all the good stuff in the footnote or you do put it above the line? And so there's always a debate. So thank you for reading our footnotes, Mac. We really appreciate it. <laughs> the, uh, well, let me tell you, there was decades that I did not. Then I started reading them. Right? No, no, I didn't. Who knew? That. Now that I'm right. I got it. Now I, now I read the footnotes. I'm looking yes. to see <laughs> When I when I graded my student papers, I'm looking at the footnotes to see what are they citing, 
if they cite id, 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 you know, the ID period, <laughs> right. um, that means they don't have very many resources. <laughs> they haven't really done a lot of research. So. Uh, how funny. You didn't call me to talk about footnotes. Well, no, but I, you know, pleasant. <laughs> I always describe these interviews as liberal arts discussions, so I give myself plenty of latitude to go where I must. But uh, footnotes, yeah. no, I'm a huge fan. The, um, but let's talk about um, let's talk about kind of the the basis of your involvement in this issue of how the military handles and what you're writing about is how the military handles sexual assault. And we'll talk about sure. that. But so, so how do you get, obviously as a, as a, as somebody who has as much experience in military law as you, I don't know that there's a more cr- prosecuted crime in the American military than, than sexual assault. Um, yeah. I'd be curious, uh, maybe, you know, so t- how do you, how, how do you, obviously get more involved in this issue as you become to write as you come to write scholarly um scholarly articles that that you know are being viewed by the nation now as uh, the nation kind of looks at this issue and uh you know you have the chairman of the joint chief sure. of staff the secretary now considering mm-hmm. it, should we change the system so how do you come um to be involved as as an well as an advocate and a writer I think it probably started uh, oh, probably about 15 years ago when I started thinking about what is the purpose of military justice. Now, everyone's got a view about military justice, depending on your experience and where you're coming from. A lot of people aren't even familiar with what it means. But I did an article that, uh, that struggled with the issue of what is the primary purpose of a criminal legal system. It is it to provide due process to an accused, or is it to um, govern uh, illegal behavior? And so I translated that into the military justice system. So is the primary purpose of military justice to provide justice, or is it to provide discipline and good order? And I did lengthy analysis and a lot of reading and research, and I came to the conclusion that The primary purpose of military justice has always been since the very beginning. um, We had military justice before the Constitution or even before the Declaration of Independence. It is to promote and to preserve good order and discipline. Now, due process is involved. And at about that same time, uh, there were renewed calls for taking the commander out of the military justice system. And that struck me as somewhat ironic because if the if the primary purpose of military justice is to promote good order and discipline, who in the military is charged with that responsibility? Well, it's the commander. It's the, uh, in the army and the Marine Corps, it's the company commander. And so that's the first line of responsibility. And I'm not a commander. I haven't had a command, I under, but I understand a little bit about the challenges that they face. I've talked with many commanders over the years, first as a prosecutor at Fort Belvoir, where they would come to me and want to prefer charges. So I started working on it, and there have always been attempts to remove the commander. There are people, even within the military, who don't seem to trust the system. They don't seem to trust commanders. They don't seem to trust the procedures. And certainly there have been a lot of changes over the decades to make it a much fairer system. But I became aware of that, and... As the uh, as the drumbeat got louder for reform, and I I think it was probably 
2005, 2006, when Senator Gillibrand introduced her first bill to remove the commander, that um, I started taking a, a serious interest in it and started giving speeches on it and wrote a couple articles about it. And that uh, drumbeat has gotten even louder in just the last two years. And that led to um, two articles that my co-author and I recently did, one in Gonzaga, which deals with the uh, sexual assault statistics. And the other was a direct response to uh, to calls to to follow what goes on with our, our allies and to adopt a, a system that would remove the commander from the system. So it's been kind of a growing involvement. And uh, probably in the last six months, just almost all of my scholarly research and writing and, and speechifying has been on this topic. Could you explain to us uh, the difference between a legal system that has at its core, as its core mission, good order and discipline, as opposed to a legal system that um, protects the right of the individual and 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 mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and vis-a-vis, you know, the, the state, the group, the collective? Uh, what's the difference? Well, I think if you take a look at a civilian system, we, you know, we've, we've just gone through this as a nation. What is the, what should be the role of the police? What should be the role of the prosecutors? And you have this constant debate and tension. Should it be on the due process rights of the accused, the rights of the victim, or should it be on law and order? And so that debate goes back and forth. And that policy decision is made by those in the legislative branch. You know, they, they'll decide do we tighten up on this? Do we make this a crime? Do we make that not a crime? Um, what rights do we provide for a defendant who's alleged to have commit this crime? And we, we face that same thing in the military. Uh, in the military, it's Congress. However, it's not the state legislatures that make that decision. And so what I've often, and that's an incidentally a very good question, it goes right to the heart of, of uh, what we should be concerned about. And that is, if the primary purpose of military justice is to promote good order and discipline, there are there are many commanders, starting with George Washington, who addressed this very issue and said, if you don't have discipline, you don't have a military. You don't have a fighting force that's able to uh, defeat the enemy. And it's hard to describe it to someone who has not been in the military to understand how badly things can go when there's no discipline. Uh, things can go downhill very quickly. And I think the sexual assault dilemma or problem, which is serious, and if there's one thing that gets me concerned, it's that I I just can't believe that after these years, you know, what, the last 10, 12 years, that the military cannot seem to solve the problem. And it does go to the heart of discipline because the the people in uniform need to be able to trust the system that it will take care of things that are wrong, that people who do bad things will be punished. You know, we've had similar issues in the past. Back in the 70s, the well, primary can, can I Can I just make – let me ask you one question. But yeah. this problem is not a military problem, though, right? I mean, this is no. this is a problem no. that, that our society no. deals with, every college, every high school, and Absolutely. every community around the country deals with. And so as a result – it is a component of our culture, and Absolutely. obviously the military deals with it. So this is not a military problem per se, yay? No, no, exactly. And that was just getting ready. Thank you for the segue, because in the 70s, 
our culture was dealing with the drug problem. Right. And the military reflected that. And just about all the cases I prosecuted at Fort Belvoir were not sexual assault. They weren't sexual harassment. I think we may have had one case where we had a, a, a drill sergeant that had acted inappropriately and he was kicked out. Uh, but in those days, drugs were the problem. Right. And just about every case uh, that went up on appeal in some way involved illegal use of drugs. And so the military was able to eventually solve that problem. Um, in some instances, they adopted a zero tolerance policy. Maybe that's what the, the military needs to do now, that if there's even hint of of a problem that you you take care of it, you fire the person involved. But it is we've really struggled with this. And part of it is that we're taking in folks from high school who uh, they've, they've grown up with this. They, this is just a part of their lives. I heard a presentation just a couple of weeks ago by a Title IX, uh, excuse me, by a, a person from a general counsel office at a major university. And the entire hour was spent on dealing with uh, Title IX problems with sexual assault on campuses. And I talked with him afterwards and I shared the article with him and he said, yeah, I'm asked. He said, I'm absolutely interested because there's a there's a real comparison between what's going on in the military and what's going on on the college campuses. Well, let me the, um, I, I told you about some of the speaking I do. And this is and I, I think you'll find this interesting. University of Rochester study in 2000 in the 2011-13 time frame on the all volunteer force. Um, and this is men surveyed 43 um, percent reported emotional abuse in their homes. 34% said there was alcohol abuse. 27% said there was domestic violence. And 12% said somebody was incarcerated, lived in their home. 11% said they were touched sexually in their home. 25% said that there were four of these things in their home. And so when, well, I, when when I speak and, and being a Marine, when I speak to Marine audiences, I said I say if that's DOD wide, what do you think the numbers are like in the Marine Corps? And they, mm-hmm. you know, and they they always say higher. And I said mm-hmm. I agree with you. And and based on me going around and speaking for now into the third year around the Marine Corps, I said I would tell you for the Marine Corps emotional abuse. I would tell you about 60%. Alcohol abuse, about 50%. Domestic violence, about 40%. Somebody incarcerated, 20 percent and i was touched sexually by somebody in my own home i'd say 20 percent and i said no this that's for men for in every one of those categories for women the numbers are higher and so we recruit from a certain segment of the of, of the civilian population they're not going to college and and i would tell you the reason most of them aren't going to college isn't because they academically can't do it it's because academics weren't an emphasis in their home why why is that well a lot of times there's turbulence there and and they're looking to get out of town and that's why suicide is even though the enlisted population of the military is 82% the enlisted population is 92% of suicide in the military why is that because there's a ton of trauma in that population and and what you're saying speaks exactly to that it is and i guess that you know the other anecdotal evidence is that you're you're mixing alcohol with wow. youth and hormones, and I know that's true on college campuses because yeah. um, they're away from home for the first time. They're they're willing to uh, live a little more free lifestyle. Mom and dad are no longer open home, or whoever is raising them is no longer there, and 
they get caught. And I think that we see that same pattern in the military. And it really should not come as a surprise to anyone. And that if, as I said earlier, it gets very frustrating for me that we cannot seem to solve the problem. And so the, the blame has been laid at the feet of the commander. Uh, for whatever reason, I, there have been cases where the command structure should have taken a stronger stance, should have done more investigating, but I think those days are gone. I think, I'd like to think that they're behind us, that nowadays, if there's an allegation of a sexual assault or sexual harassment, everyone's antennas go up and, and steps are taken. Uh, we have a wonderful system to protect our victims once they've identified as being a victim. They are appointed, I don't know, how many people are aware of this, but they receive free legal advice from a special victims council. All the services have that. And there are lawyers representing victims. So in a sexual assault case in the military today, it's not unusual. I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not unusual to see three lawyers in the courtroom, one for the prosecution, one for the defense, and one for the victim. And the military courts have held that victims council have a right to prevent the views of the victim in terms of turning over privileged information, uh, the admissibility of, of prior sexual acts on their part. So I've talked with special victims counsel at, at various installations and they are, they're very inspired by their work. They, they really do see a need for lawyers to represent victims. Now you will not find that in very many civilian jurisdictions and certainly not on campuses. So, when you say, you know, it's frustrating that, that, you know, we haven't been able to do a better job, um, and, and we'll get to your articles here in a minute, is anybody doing a good job with this, David? Well, I, I don't know that we could say we're doing a good job, but we're, it's not a broken system. Uh, the studies that, that have been produced on this, uh, there's one from the uh, – Defense Advisory Committee on uh, Investigation, Prosecution, and Defense, a real mouthful, so pardon me, it's called IPAD. It's a military uh, advisory committee that was set up in the Army, and that group, having studied uh, hundreds of cases, determined that in 95% of the cases, the decision to prosecute or not prosecute, 95%, they were reasonable decisions. Wow. Now, that means you may have 4 or 5%. That's, that's a pretty low error rate. Um, where they apparently came to the conclusion that, well, they either should not have prosecuted or they should have prosecuted. And reasonable minds can always differ. What I've learned, Mac, in talking with a variety of people about this, in fact, I have some current law students. One of them is a retired battalion commander. And she said, in her experience, most of the cases fell through the crack because there was insufficient evidence. That it's a he said, she said. Uh, alcohol was almost always involved. Uh, there's regret on one or both parties' part. And so when the uh, the police sit down to investigate him, when the, the CID or the FOSI, whatever, sit down to talk to him, they're trying to assess their credibility. And a, and a lawyer, not the commander alone, but the lawyer is looking at the facts, looking at the case file and saying, can I win this case? Can I prove the accused is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? And so when you attack the commander, and most of the attacks have been attacks on the fact that the commanders are not lawyers. Uh, but here's how I viewed it. I always viewed the commanders I advised. They were my clients. 
and I gave them the best possible legal advice I could. I would look at the case file. They'd walk into my office. They'd say, Cap, what do you think? And we go to trial. And in some cases, the evidence was weak or there was a credibility problem with one of the witnesses or more than one witness. And I would say, well, maybe you ought to think about some alternate measures. And in those cases, we would take them down the hallway to the administrative uh, board's office and show the file to them because there it's uh, it's probably more of a preponderance of the evidence. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. So there were alternate methods of ridding people from the military, but it's a complicated question. And so when um, Senator Gillibrand and others keep pounding the drum for getting the commander out of the system, um, I think they're attacking the, the pro- as somebody said, it's a, it's a solution looking for a problem. I don't think commanders are the problem. All right. Are I, they perfect? No. But. Well, and again, especially one of the things that, you know, was illuminating about your work for me was was that the military actually is pretty good at doing this. And, and that's what I want to kind of I want to get to now. So you published the first article I saw. And we'll say, if you don't mind, if you'll indulge me. Um, because it is my show. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, no, no, I just want to go through these in, in the order that I've seen them, if you don't mind. So the first sure. one I see is the article that, that, that you wrote along with, um, along with Lisa, right? Is her name, first name? Yes. Okay. So you and Lisa, she's an associate dean right, at GW, George Washington. Okay. So it's entitled, it's, it, it's in, uh, I saw it on the website, The Hill. It's uh, entitled, Statistics Don't Support Removing Commanders from Military Justice. I see that. Right. And my both my eyebrows go down and connect. Okay. And I'm like, what? Um, because this has been, you know, for those of us who've served and, and have watched this system and understand uh, the good and bad of the system, I, I've only heard Senator Gillibrand beating the drum year after year that we're failing. And then I see this and I I go into the article. So could you talk to everybody about the the gist of that article? Um, yes. Um, we did two white papers last summer uh, because we were aware that uh, the Center on Services Committee was considering this, and both Lisa and I, on other occasions, she did it in 2013, I did it as well, but separately, that uh, Congress and the Pentagon appreciate white papers to kind of help them formulate their position. So we did the two white papers, and one of them was on on the statistical studies in uh, the military and states and on the uh, university and college campuses. And we circulated that to um, to the Hill and to the Pentagon, and uh, we eventually put it into an article. We were starting to get very positive feedback, at least from the people who were reading it, that we needed to do more of that. And so, um, and I really have to to doff my hat to Lisa. She really dug into the the statistical studies, and she had done a similar article to this. I believe in either 2013 or 2014. So she already had the background for it. And, um, you know, now the data can be updated. And if you read that article uh, and it's available online, now that's the Gonzaga Law Review article you're talking about, right? Not the Hill. The Hill was an op-ed and we cited the Gonzaga piece. Right. So so that's why I, I, I see first the Hill op-ed that yes. cites the Gonzaga piece. And then as right. I'm reading through, 
because I read footnotes now. Yes. I click on that and I go to the Gonzaga Law Review piece and I'm like, holy smokes, man. Look at this. This is like a treasure trove of the data that you need to actually have an informed discussion so that you can do the right thing and make the right decision. I was, I, I was, I can't, I mean, this makes me a geek. I know I was geek to read it. Right. And it's kind of geeky stuff in terms of kind of, it's, it's heavily academic, heavily footnoted, you know, um, I I would say technical writing. So talk to us about, about what you guys developed in the, the Gonzaga Law Review articles entitled National Military and College Reports on Prosecution of Sexual Assaults and Victims' Rights, colon, Is the Military Actually Safer Than Civilian Society? So that's the title of it. So, yeah. David, yeah, go ahead. What's, well, tell us about that. I can, let's not get into the footnotes, but I'll summarize some key points for you. Okay, first of all, we, we concluded that the rate of sexual assaults in the military is uh, lower than in many civilian jurisdictions. And uh, we also were able to determine that the rate of victims reporting the crimes was higher in the military than in the other jurisdictions that we examined. Um, We also concluded that the rate of prosecution and conviction was higher in the military than in the civilian jurisdictions. And uh, we concluded that in terms of the risk to female victims, uh, it was 50% greater likelihood uh, for ages 17 to 24 uh, if you're on a college campus than if you're in the military. Now, that data does not get cited, and I don't know why, except that this data seems to suggest that what some people in Congress, Senator Gildebrand, are trying to do, getting rid of the commander, trying to get the, the prosecutions being handled by pro, by lawyers instead of commanders is going to make that much of a difference. And the statistics do not support those proposed changes. Okay, so and one way to deal with that is just to ignore them or to say these are faulty statistics. But the, the beauty of footnotes, if I can put out a good word for footnotes, is that the readers can read the footnote, they go to the links, they go to the national report, they go to the University of Texas, they go to California, they go to Texas, uh, the state of Texas and the University of Texas, or they go to New York, and they can see for themselves what the statistics hold. Now, one word of warning, the problem, and we recognize this in the article, is that you're sometimes dealing with different colored apples or apples and oranges. So, for example, some state might report sexual assaults between the ages of 17 and 25, and another state reports it between 18 and 23. So you, you have to be really careful in extrapolating this information. So we were we tried to be as careful as we possibly could. But David, let me just and, let me just skew to 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 to, to your credibility. If the data was was really close then those footnotes become really important, right? And so you said there's a 50% greater incident rate on college campuses than there is in the military. You said the rate of reporting is higher in the military versus both colleges and urban settings that you guys looked at. The, The rate of conviction is higher. And again, when you say higher, none of the none of the statistical difference are marginally higher 
Yes? No, no, you're right. You're not talking one or two points. You're, yeah. So you're none, none, of the devi- none of the deviations are within the, st- the statistical probability of error that, no. that you would they, – they are all multiples of – uh, of the system, so the evidence is overwhelming that the military is one safer relative to this crime, two reported more frequently, and 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 conclude what you would about the environment for reporting, and then and then convicted more often, so conclude what you would about the military seriousness to charge and convict. All I mean, I was I was astounded to read that. Because that's nowhere in any narrative have I ever either heard that or read that. No, and I think that's why the article seems to be getting a lot of traction. Because I, I, I think at the time, we were generally aware that there really wasn't much written out there. But it's only when people start calling and writing in and saying, you're the first article that's really done this. And you say, well, I guess it is. We, at the time you're just cutting the wood and cutting the wood put in front of you. You know, you're not worrying about what everybody else is doing with their pile of wood. You're just cutting the wood. And so we're grateful that, that people are at least reading it. And what I think we both agree on, because we've talked about this is that there's always room for more study. There's always room for more analysis but we don't want to get bogged down in the nitty gritty before making decisions about the role of the commander, because what really drove us in part to do the article was this belief that the facts just didn't support the policy change to make a dramatic change to the structure of military justice, which has been in place since the beginning of the Republic. And we, we both strongly believe now we are not, we're not on the unanimous side on this because we have we have friends, in fact, former military JAGs or m- former military who believe the time has come to turn this all over to the lawyers. And it sounds strange coming from lawyers that we're not the only ones who can handle this. So many of these decisions are, are common sense. And in my experience, commanders listen to their JAGs. They don't want to get in trouble. Some of them are pretty hard-headed, and they'll go either way. The JAG will say... You should prosecute, and the commander will say, no, we're not going to prosecute. Uh, in other cases, the JAG says, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't prosecute, and the commander will want to go the other way or will prosecute. So it's, it's – um, Well, let me ask you a question about that because, to me, if there's a tendency in the military – this is just my, my experience it's, – um, it's to prosecute. And yes. so, you know, in terms of this event, is now known in my battalion. Now it's it's we've, we're investigating it, and mm-hmm. and and like most like like many of these, um, there is there is a gray area. It involves two people. They were alone. Alcohol is involved. It was not immediately reported. Now I've got a decision to make. And what message do I send relative to good order and discipline if I don't take this to court martial? And so, and so, to me, if there is a bias to commanders, it's to um, it's to charge and 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 to send this to court martial. Now, you know, um, among this is predominantly a a a male on female crime. I know it happens male on male, female on female, and female on male, but it's predominantly a male on female event in the American military. And so if you ask junior Marines and junior soldiers what they think of the system, what they say is you're screwed 
by the allegation and their perception yeah. of the system. And so you correct me if I'm wrong. Is, is, is overall, is there a bias among commanders to charge? And then, and then, so. and then you just, I'm sure you saw the TikTok video of, I think it was a Marine sergeant, female type, who went on TikTok. The thing goes viral. And the Secretary of Defense comments on it the next day, as well as uh, uh, official Marine Corps comments. Uh, so this is an individual case in an individual unit based on a viral video of a very emotional female Marine, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. have sec def visibility, comment on the Marine Corps level visibility based on that. And so if you're a commander, what do you conclude from that? Yeah, if I do have a bias, so you're, I'd be curious. Yeah, I think that if you think about what's taking place in the civilian society with the Me Too movement, it's certainly there in the military as well. And I've I've had a military judge tell me some years ago, and I've heard it from other sources, that you believe the victim. You believe the victim. So if the victim says, I was sexually assaulted, you're, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to bring court-martial charges. And I predicted this um, – five or six years ago when I could see that the tide was turning, that there were cases going to trial where behind the scenes, people are saying this case never should go to trial. The evidence just isn't there, but the pressure was so tremendous on the commanders and even the Jags to take it to trial. And I know that in some services, that's kind of the presumption that if there's an allegation, it's going to go to, well, think about that in the civilian life, that if there's a mere allegation that you broke the law, you're going to go to jail. You can't even try to argue with the DA ahead of time that there isn't sufficient evidence. And I predicted that what would happen is that the cases would be tried before members between officers and enlisted or just officers, and that they would conclude there was no guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And they would acquit, and then all hell would break loose. And it did. And then there were cases where they were convicted, but on appeal— before the service appellate courts, which have what we call fact-finding power, they get to look at the facts as though they were trying the case themselves. They review the record, and some of the courts were reversing the cases for lack of sufficient evidence. The appellate judges were saying, we have looked through this entire record, and we can't see how there's sufficient evidence to find the accused guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, then all hell broke loose for that, so this last year Congress, Congress changed the fact-finding powers of the appellate courts. So there's tremendous pressure politically for higher convictions. And I have started to make the argument in uh, conversations, folks, if this keeps up, we're going to go back to the pre-UCMJ days. What happened in World War II? You were presumed guilty. And it was those, it was those drumhead justice days, those summary disposition days, that led to the UCMJ and greater protections for military accused because the public was outraged when they found out what military justice meant. People were coming back from war and there were outrageous stories about people being convicted on, uh, on really shaky evidence. And so the whole idea of the, the current UCMJ is to make sure that if we take someone to trial, they are going to get due process. Now this is a former prosecutor speaking, right? Um, I sent several, many young men to jail, and I still believe in the system. And that's why it angers me when I hear people saying, well, it's all the fault of the commander. No, it's not the fault of the commander. And here's the thing. I don't know the, I don't know how far you want to go on this, but the proposals that Senator Gillibrand has put forth would take away the power of a commander to actually bring the charges 
and then for a general officer, for example, to refer the charges to court-martial. So in effect, the entire chain of command would be uh, taken out of the equation, and it would be sent to an office outside the chain of custody to a JAG of a rank of at least 06 who had experience in prosecuting cases. And that office, which would apparently be manned with uh, paralegals and staff and whatever, to make decisions about who to send to trial. And as we have mentioned in other venues, there are just so many unintended consequences. And you're you're taking away from company commanders, battalion commanders, brigade commanders, the opportunity to weigh in on what should happen to this troop, what should happen to this accused. As one battalion commander told me, my, my law school student, she said, when one of these incidents arose, I needed to let the entire command know that I had their back. Right. Whether it was those who were defending the accused or those who were, were wanted to see justice on the part of the victim. And they needed to understand that I took this seriously and that I was going to do my utmost to get the best legal advice that I could and then decide what course of action to take. And I thought it's a shame that she's no longer on active duty because I think she had it right. I think she had it right. I want to ask you, um, I, w- I want to talk about the, you just recently, um, you and Lisa have, have released another piece uh, in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. Um, but I, I, I want to talk about if, if this, if Senator Gillibrand is successful and this goes to a, a separate um, adjudicating authority, um, do you see one of the interesting things I, 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 one of the lines I remember from the article in the Hill is no amount of lawyering can bridge the gap of insufficient evidence. And so, right. and so would you think that, that, so, so my own opinion is that what you'll see is because they won't take as many cases to trial, you'll see the percentage go up. But you won't see the total number go up, You're, exactly. because uh, one a few things that, that you and Lisa have in in in, in the piece in the uh, in the Hill is is that this is vigorously investigated by by the United States military. It is vigorously charged and taken very seriously. And so, if you understand those two things, um, when you take it out, and, and that commanders will send something to to court martial that professional prosecutors would never do because they know they're not going to get a conviction. So what would you expect in terms of the data given the fact that investigations are going to still be done the same way and incidents will still be taken seriously? What would you expect the data to give back to you after say a year or two in a different system with professional prosecutors? I'm going to talk like a lawyer. Now, I don't, I don't know what to expect, but it would not surprise me that if after a couple of years of this new system, there was a drop in prosecutions because lawyers are going to look at this information, and now the pressure is on them. Now they're under the microscope. And the tendency, I think, I'm afraid the tendency would be that, okay, look, everybody's watching us to see what this new office is going to do. And so there may be some offices that will err on the side of prosecuting because they don't want to be criticized for not prosecuting, right? That's the current culture. 
So there's a part of me that says, well, they'll just continue the current culture. And that is, you believe the victim, you don't believe the accused, and let's let a jury decide what, what happened. On the other hand, you may find people who will say, no, now that we're looking at this, and it's just lawyers looking at it, the command is no longer involved in that decision, they may decide, no, we, we don't want to lose. Lawyers do not like losing cases. I can tell you that. And so they might very well say, nope, this is a close call. We're not going to prosecute. And then all hell will break loose. Here's what my concern is, and I've started to express this when this comes up in conversations, that three or four years from now, our conversation, if this goes through and, and senior JAGs are now making these decisions to prosecute or not prosecute, that Congress will still be upset about it and say, okay, that's it. We've given you a chance to fix it. Now we're going to kick all of this over to the civilian courts. And that will never work. And those arguments have been made since before uh, even the UCMJ. There was a belief that military justice was simply inept at dealing with legal rights and therefore uh, only military offenses like AWOL, disobedience of an order, disrespect should be tried in a military court. Everything else ought to be tried in a civilian court. And I'm real concerned that that really would disrupt military justice. And so this may simply be one small step right. toward what many have called civilianization of military justice. There's another issue involved with this 06, and we've started to talk about it. Well, let me first of all, can I make a comment? That was yeah. not, that was a way more substantive answer than your basic lawyer type answer, just for the record. Um, and, and, and to me, you know, what I see is, is that if this goes to a separate, you know, line and the data doesn't change, we're now going to have this conversation again and saying, what's the problem? Which goes exactly. back to the comment of, this evidentiary thing is the problem. Convicting beyond a reasonable doubt is the problem. In this, only two people there, not reported right away, right? D evidence is difficult. He said, she said, alcohol-fueled, you know, yep. um, and, and, and the, the stuff that we deal with on a regular basis. And then we're going to say, okay, so explain that to me again. It's The evidence here is very, very difficult. Right. Very, so right. And, and okay. then we'll and then we'll have a more serious discussion about that agenda item, because that's really what it gets down to is the requirement yeah. to, to, to convict on evidence that convicts you of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt and and the difficulty of getting that kind of evidence in these kind of cases. Absolutely. Now, I will say and and. In fairness, just to show the other side's arguments, that there are a number of commanders who would be more than happy to give up this responsibility. Oh, I, you know what? I, that's what I said. To get they this out of – oh, I'm yeah. like, get it away get from it me. Away. Be, yeah, because the only thing I can do is screw this up. And exactly. really, And really what I do is – do you want to know how fast I – now, I, here's another stupid question. I've heard people use the term refer – someone to court-martial. I hear yes. you say the word prefer. Yes. I mean, Marines, Eng yeah. English is not our strong suit. <laughs> what, what's the appropriate phraseology? Okay. Well, you prefer the charges, and under the UCMJ, anyone can prefer a charge, which means you uh, get someone to type up a charge sheet, you allege the crime, 
you go before someone whose ability to uh, to administer oaths and you swear or affirm that your allegation is true. That's the preferral, and we do it on a charge sheet. Okay. I think it's duty form four five three. That gets the charges started. Okay. That document, along with all the supporting information, the police reports, the lab reports, gets sent up through the chain of command. If it appears that it's for a felony-level offense, sexual offense, then either the battalion or the brigade commander will order an Article 32 hearing, an Article 32 preliminary hearing officer who will be a JAG, who will hear evidence, look at the evidence, and then write a report on whether he or she believes there's probable cause to go forward. If they believe that there is probable cause, it goes to a staff judge advocate who is required to present a written advice on whether or not there's sufficient evidence to go forward. That is then carried to the commanding general, the convening authority. The convening authority makes the decision whether or not, based on the legal advice from his JAG, not on a local command. Now, the local command in the chain of command, they can say, yeah, we need to go forward, but it's the JAG who's got the legal advice. Then that CG, that convening authority, is the one who decides to refer the case to trial. So there's a document that actually sets up the court-martial, and from there, the judge takes over, prosecutor take over, defense take over. And so back in the day, the convening authority, after the trial was all over, the accused could go back to the convening authority and say, hey, I'm really sorry, I didn't do this the way I thought I should. He could present arguments for clemency, and the commanding general could actually grant clemency in the findings and sentence. Wow. And Congress got upset with that, so they took that power away. <laughs> and so the power of the convening authority has been greatly limited. More power has been shifted to the military judge. But the command prefers the charges upon legal advice. And and even though anybody can prefer charges, it's almost always the company grade officer who, you know, company officer, uh, company commander who says, okay. And in most cases, they walk over to their JAG and the JAG talks to them. And it's the JAG office that actually types up the form and they call the captain in that's ready to be signed, the major in, take the oath, and it goes up the chain. So um, that system would be disrupted. And again, it would be taken out of that entire chain of command. and. What I have had friends say to those commanders who say, I don't want to do anything, they say, you don't understand the nature of command. You don't understand your responsibility. Your people need to know that you are in charge and that you will not tolerate indiscipline. You will not tolerate insubordination. You will not tolerate drug use. You will not tolerate sexual. They need to hear that from you. They need to know that that's your position. And as hard as it is, and yeah, you may, may make a mistake, don't ship it over to the lawyers. Don't say, it's not my problem. Go talk to a lawyer. And it's really unfortunate. That's so different than what you would find in the civilian community. But um, it would be somewhat like here in San Antonio, we have a district attorney. If the state legislature said, well, you no longer have jurisdiction to try these cases. No, I'm sorry. You will try the cases, but the decision to try them will be made in Austin. Somebody in an Austin office high-ranking Austin office will make the decision because what's going to happen, this this separate command is not going to prosecute the cases. They're going to be located in a central graphical location, probably in a large office building. So they'll send the file back down to the uh, prosecutor, a captain or a major, and they'll say, take this case to trial. 
So you really end up with a really strange, it'd be interesting to have psychologists test this to see the impact that this is going to have on just respect for the system. And if I'm a prosecutor, I don't want to be taking orders from somebody who's 500 to 1,000 miles away telling me how to try the case. This is my case. This is my command. You know, I'm friends with the commanders, and I told them I've got their back. I'm taking the case to trial. So there are a lot of unintended consequences that I think just have not been thought through, and that's unfortunate. All right, let me take you to the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty article entitled Taking Charge of Court-Martial Charges, the Important Role of the Commander in the American Military Justice System. Now, this is just uh, was I saw it was published on May 5th. Uh, of this month, of this year. And so talk to us about, so now that everybody understands, we've spent 54 minutes and 43 seconds laying the groundwork for I, 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 the intellectual basis, the statistical footnotes that the intellectual basis comes from. What is your? Mm-hmm. What would be your recommendation uh, to the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff if he was sitting across the table from you and sit down and said, hey, David, what do I do? What would you tell him? I would say don't take the commander out of the system. There are other options that you might consider. For example, you might give more authority to the uh, the local JAGs so that if there's a disagreement between the staff judge advocate and a company commander about whether to prefer charges or between a general court martial convening authority and staff judge advocate, the lawyer wins so that at least it appears that lawyers are giving that advice. They are. But certainly uh, – uh, general, I would consider unintended consequences. Just a quick list. For example, the convening authority currently gets involved with the defense counsel in plea bargaining. The uh, convening authority gets involved in approving uh, expenses to fly witnesses in. The, the convening authority gets involved in deciding who should be given grants of immunity. Uh, the local convening authority is consulted if during the midst of trial, the prosecutor goes and says, sir, I think we need to amend our charges because the evidence is falling through the cracks. So there are a myriad of issues that can arise that are not addressed in this legislation. So, sir, before you take that next big step, um, be sure that it's very carefully thought out and that you don't pass a legislation so you can see what's going to be in the legislation. And frankly, that's exactly what we're looking at right now. And whether the people in the Senate Armed Services Committee are crunching the numbers, whether somebody up there is saying, let's slow down a little bit. Now, again, this is not the first rodeo. They've been doing this almost on an annual basis. Right. No, since, uh, since what about – you You said, I think, 2005 was the first time Senator Gillibrand uh, – put... it was about then. I'd have to go right. back and look at my notes, but right. I know no. it's been – I want to say five or six years total, so it probably doesn't go all that way back to that, probably 13 or 14. All right, let me ask you, since I'm the chairman now, um, where, uh, David, I've never seen this data before. What you're telling me based on your data is the system is far better than any civilian system that you looked at, major urban centers and, 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 and universities, anything that was included in your data, our system's better than, so this low self-esteem we have because of this very difficult issue, we should at least know that on a relative basis, we're the best thing out there. We, yes. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. 
I wouldn't say necessarily the best thing. I, I'd hedge my bet a little bit. I'd say we're really good shape. We're a lot better shape than the critics would have it be. And well, I would say, and I would, and I, of course, the general's not going to do it. I say, well, can you get that colonel over there? Take this data, uh, call us on it, and we'll go back and double check it. But we're pretty confident in the data that we've got. And so, um, I would just encourage them to take take a close look at it and slow down. Um, whether that's going to prevail or not, I don't know. I'm very hopeful. I'm hopeful that cooler heads will prevail. Well, I hope you would throw sir in there a few times after I, after yes, all, I yes, am the yes, chairman of the Joint Chiefs yes, of Staff, for God's sakes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> the, um, so, so first, based on the data, I, as the leader of, 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 as a chairman of, of the American military, I should have more confidence in, 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 in my commanders and the system based on what I've seen. Yes. I would certainly hope so. I would certainly hope so. I'm afraid what happens is when it gets right down to it, Matt, you've been around a long time. You know that there's politics in every phase of American life, including the military. So there's a lot of CYA going on. um, And there are a lot of people saying, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And so that's just the nature of the beast. And maybe that's why people like Lisa and I and people who are no longer on active duty uh, might be able to put something in writing to share our research, have people read the footnotes, and um, tell them Here, this is what our research has shown. And hopefully it'll have an impact. Uh, win, lose, or draw, Mac, we, we did our best to get the information out there. Well, I just want to congratulate you. And my my guest today is uh, David A. Schleter. What's the A stand for? Arnold. Uh, no wonder you have it as A. Um, my middle name's Francis, so I'm with you on that. Michael, I love that. <laughs> Michael F. McNamara. Um, no, I just want to congratulate you because let me tell you, it's important to do the right thing. And, and, and if part of the story is, is, is you know, and, 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 and I'll liken it to another story that the Marine Corps doesn't tell. You know, you hear this, the story of the Marine Corps, I think, has 10%, 9 or 10% of its general officers right now are black. Um and uh, why is that? You know, you know, black America is 13 percent of the population yet, you know. Well, so you begin to look for the footnotes. Um, black Americans come in the Marine Corps, I want to say, at about 11, 12 percent. Hispanics at about 20 percent. So that's 30 percent. By the time we grow them to the senior enlisted level, they comprise 40 percent of senior enlisted Marines. So clearly, the Marine Corps got the memo, and promotes them on on a, on a pace greater, you know, than you know Caucasians. Okay, Amazing. and so so one of when you talk to recruiters and you talk to to manpower people, one of the things they say is the competitive space for people that can be CEOs of of this organization, the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, for for let's say young black men and women that have those kind of skills, do you know how many doors they have open to them? They have every door open that can possibly be open. Absolutely. And so the competitive space there is very, very competitive. So, you know, try as we may and and, and we can try harder, you know, and, and we'll commit to that. But this is not an easy thing to grow. I would offer you our, our success on the enlisted side as evidence of our goodwill and intentions. But, Absolutely, but that's not Absolutely. the that's not the story that gets told, David, and that's why 
your work and Lisa's work to me is so heartening because if we're going to have a discussion and we're going to make a major change, let's do it based on the evidence in front of us, the facts as it is, the truth as it is, and then let's make the best decision. Because this, good order and discipline is a big deal. It's not a joke. Yep. Well, as I worked for a man once, he was from Arkansas, and he had a definite Arkansas twang, and he said, Schleter, I want to tell you, a platoon of facts will wipe out a battalion of law. <laughs> facts every day will win, but people have to be willing. Before much more time goes by, thank you, Mac, for your service. I know you've had an illustrious career. Uh, when I talk to people who are in uniform or have been in uniform, I think it's really important for Americans to thank them for their service, wherever it may have been, whenever it was, because their sacrifices were paid. And um, I just believe very strongly that part of that service, uh, at least on our part right now, it doesn't end, is to write these articles, to to help people understand how to apply the law or to understand the law. That's part of a teaching function. And uh, your podcast is part of that. It's a teaching function. Well, not, uh, first of all, you, you, you know, because, you know, we walk the same path that, you know, that serving in the, the military of this great country is one of the great privileges of your life. And it certainly has mm-hmm. been for me. And I, I can tell by the way you speak it, it's the same as you. Let me, my final question for you, David, is uh, is Article 134, the general question. What haven't I been smart enough to ask you about this topic? Um, that's no bullshit. I ask this all the time. And I do refer to it as, as the general question, Article 134. So what, uh, what haven't I been smart enough to ask you about this subject that without which this discussion would not be complete? I think we pretty much covered. Oh, that, that was the, that's it's a trick question, first of all, and that was the right yeah. answer. Thank you very much. And we didn't <laughs> talk about this beforehand, did we? We did. This is unrehearsed, folks. Just so you know. Well done, well, my good. friend. You're you certainly will be invited back. Well, thank you very much. Anything I can do to help you, uh, I'd be more than happy to do it, Matt. No, but complete your thought. Uh, I, I I didn't. I was being no, funny. I, I, I think part of it is you reach this point where you keep thinking, you know, the minute we terminate this, I'll probably think of 30 things I should right. have said, right. and I'll think of 29 things that I shouldn't have said. But I do think, and just looking back and thinking about, we've we've really covered the waterfront. And I, I think the key is that when, for example, if we're given an opportunity uh, to talk with staffers and we've had that opportunity, uh, we've been on the phone, we've been on Zoom meetings. And the key, the key is just to keep it simple, stupid. And you just say, look, here's what's being proposed and here's why it's a bad idea. Um, because uh, people on the Hill are busy. They've got a lot of fish to fry. They've got fires to put out, whatever metaphor you want to use. And so sometimes it's difficult getting their attention. One of the problems I think we face in Congress is that there's a decreasing number of former military people on the Hill. Uh, you know, the day was that when you started speaking these issues, um, people would resonate and would listen. You know, Senator Lindsey Graham is a retired Air Force JAG. And so you have a number of people up there who know exactly what the system is, and hopefully they'll listen, and hopefully it'll change their mind. Well, David, first of all, I just want to thank you for doing this. Uh, it's, uh, I, as I said before, uh, when I first read your work, I was like, holy smokes, uh, and then haven't had a chance to meet you and, and do this. Uh, I promise you, we will do this again as this uh, as this article as this issue continues. 
you know, to be at the forefront. Uh, you're an incredible uh, spokesman for this. And I just want to thank you and Lisa for the work you've done. And uh, thank you very much for doing this and uh, wish you uh, all the best. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure and honor. How about that? Yeah. What a, uh, what a great um, look. Um, and I have to tell you, I mean, an absolute honor to have David on today. Um, and again, his name is David Schleter. Um, he, uh, he teaches at St. Mary's University School of Law. And, uh, and the, uh, his co-author, uh, her name is Lisa Stank. And uh, she teaches at George Washington University law school and but um i mean what a great discussion and and let me tell you the the most concerning um part of all of this is that is that empirical reports like that right this is something that people are seeing for the first time i've never seen it i read i pay attention i've never seen an article like this I've never seen an article that quantifies these statistics and compares large urban areas with the military, universities with the military. And so, I mean, to me, the sad part about this, right, if the Senate Armed Service Committee has its way, because nobody really cares about the truth, you know, Senator Gillibrand is just thumping, right, her issue. And so... Now she's got an administration that'll pass it. The Democrats have control of the Senate Armed Service Committee. And so we're going to go to a system that won't be as good as the one we have now. And we're going to do that for purely political reasons. That's pathetic. I would tell you this. If the data that David and Linda put in front of everybody said that this system needed to be changed, I'd say, well, do it. Because you know commanding officers would be more than happy to say, get rid of this, man. I don't need this. This is this is a nightmare for me. They'd be more than happy to get rid of it. Right? This we know. Okay? This we know. But when you look at that, the data that comes out of this, which is a story that's simply not told, uh, pretty pathetic. Pretty pathetic, and that this decision is going to get made purely on a political agenda. So, um, again, my thanks to uh, David Schleter for coming on. More of Almond Radio coming up next, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network.